Hi, everybody. Welcome to the official RBYA podcast. We hope that whatever content we bring to you, whether it be messages or interviews or whatever else it may be, we hope that it would be edifying, that it would help you grow in maturity and in faith and the, in the knowledge of God. And we also hope that you stick around for any future announcements or updates. We hope you enjoy. Most of you probably know the name John Calvin. Probably heard about him. You know John Calvin would be one of the uh, leading Protestant reformers. He was actually the foremost of the French reformers, kind of the spiritual successor to Martin Luther. You know he wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion, that massive work of biblical theology. Uh, he is a renowned theologian, a brilliant exegete of Scripture. In fact, one of his contemporaries, the German Philip Melanchthon, he said of Calvin, he said he is the most skillful interpreter of Scripture in the church. And so Philip Melanchthon nicknamed Calvin the theologian. Not one of the theologians, but the theologian. Charles Spurgeon praised Calvin as well. He said he presented truth more clearly than any man that ever breathed. He knew more of Scripture and explained it more clearly. The summary of Calvin's life would be a man who was marked by unusual spiritual success and influence. That's why we still know him hundreds of years later. But what most people don't know about John Calvin is he was also a man marked by suffering. You see, Calvin was a man who had tasted the bitter fruit of sorrow. His life was marked by chronic asthma, regular migraines. He suffered from kidney stones and gallstones. He suffered arthritis, influenza, and fevers. But it wasn't just the physical pain that, that filled his life. He knew emotional pain. See, he suffered the disappointment of the loss of his firstborn to a miscarriage. And after that, he suffered the continued disappointment of never being able to have children again. But even worse than the loss of his firstborn was the loss of his wife after nine years of marriage. And Calvin would never marry again. Calvin's life was, yes, a story of remarkable spiritual success. But it's equally true that his life was one of deep and profound suffering. And so I think the question must be asked, how does a man like John Calvin, who suffers so much in his lifetime, endure and remain faithful? And I think the answer in part lies in the fact that Calvin had an unswerving confidence in the sovereignty of God. See, Calvin knew that his God was in control and knew that his God would carry him through. He said this, In times of adversity, believers comfort themselves with the solace that they suffer nothing except by God's ordinance and command, for they are under his hand. Calvin also said, Thou, O Lord, Thou bruises me. It is enough for me to know it is Thy hand 
for Calvin. God's sovereignty was the pillow upon which he laid his head. It was the medicine that soothed his soul, and it was the wind that filled his sails with hope. And I know in a room this size, there are many of you who know what it is to suffer. You're not that old, but even yet in your life, you've had pain and trouble. You've had loved ones die to things like car accidents, cancer. Maybe you lost grandparents to COVID. You've experienced deep and personal loss. You know disappointment. You've had friends or those close to you turn their backs on you and abandon you. So there are many of you, if not all of you, who know what it is to have pain in this life. And so I think in a similar way, just as, as John Calvin could lean hard on the sovereignty of God, I think it is valuable and even necessary for us to reflect on the sovereignty of God. You may not have had too many troubles in your life yet, but I can promise you they will come. But it's not simply for suffering, for the sake of suffering, that we need to understand God's sovereignty. Because if we are going to give God the glory that He deserves, the glory that this book, the Scripture, would, would say God demands, then we need to understand God's sovereignty because it is instrumental to His character. You can't know God without knowing a sovereign God. So this morning, what I want to look at in just this first session together is I want to look at the sovereignty of God. But now it's time to define what does sovereignty mean? When we speak of that word, what does it even mean? The theologian A.W. Pink, he described it this way. He said, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high. Lord of heaven and earth. Subject to none. Influenced by none. Absolutely independent. God does as he pleases and only as he pleases. John, or rather, John Piper, he puts it a bit more simply. So if you want to write down a description of God's sovereignty, write this one down. God's sovereignty is his right and his power. To do whatever he wants. It's his right and power to do all that he decides to do. So in order to understand this perfection of God, right? This essential element of God's character. I want to explain three critical truths to you this morning about God's sovereignty. Three critical truths that will reveal the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God's sovereignty. But before we do that, since we're in the a conference about the attributes of God, let me lay out a few key principles that will help govern this discussion. A few key principles to bear in mind as we spend three sessions, two today, one tomorrow, discussing God's attributes. So as we talk about them, remember firstly that God is fully each one of his attributes. God's not a puzzle. A piece of him is wisdom, and a piece of him is sovereignty, and a piece of him is power. God is all of his attributes in entirety. His essence is his attributes. His attributes are his essence. So he is fully wise, fully sovereign, fully powerful. 
So know that God is fully each of his perfections. Not part of one, part of another. He's all of them, and he's all of them at all times. His perfections, number two, are always active. One day he doesn't have wisdom, and the next day he has knowledge, and the next day it's power. His attributes are always active. He's not like a light bulb that goes on and off. His attributes are always in effect, always engaged in everything that God does. And then finally, his attributes qualify each other. His attributes are never at odds with one another. His love never combats with his mercy or his justice. His justice is a holy justice. His sovereignty is a wise and powerful sovereignty. But just remember as we talk about the attributes of God, he's all of his attributes at all times, and they qualify one another. His attributes never are in conflict with one another. So those are the key principles to bear in mind. Now we're going to dive in to the heart of what is the sovereignty of God. Number one, if you're going to keep notes, number one, his sovereignty is supreme. God's sovereignty is supreme. What I mean by that is he alone exercises authority. He doesn't share his authority. God's not part of a divine committee, not part of a council. He doesn't write laws and then have Congress or the Senate approve them. He alone has independent, absolute authority. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. This is Moses. Deuteronomy 4.39. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. That last phrase, there is no other, encapsulates this idea that God is absolutely, totally, completely in control. And he doesn't share his authority with anyone. He's the undisputed king of creation. Isaiah 46, the same idea comes across. Isaiah 46, 8 and 9. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When you hear Isaiah's declaration. Can you question at all the fact that God alone is uniquely, singularly in charge? One more verse. Turn with me to this verse, Psalm 135. I want to read this one with you. Psalm 135. One more verse that drives home the point that God is sovereign. Verses 5 and 6, Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6, it reads like this. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. So the language is unmistakable. God rules, God reigns, and he does it alone. He's dominant, he's supreme, he wields absolute authority. Give you a biblical illustration of this. 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is the time of the judges. Samuel is judge at this time. The people go to war with the Philistines. And as a good luck charm, they bring along the Ark of the Covenant. 
Because they think if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, surely we will win the battle. So they bring along the Ark of the Covenant, and yet surely they are defeated. The Philippines rout the Israelites. And they conquer, the Philippines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And the, Philippine, the Philistines are excited because here they have just conquered, in their minds, Israel's God. And so like a, a war treasure, the spoils of war, they cart the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the house of their temple of Dagon. So Dagon was a, Philippine, a Philistine god and he was like a half fish, half man. Upper body fish, lower body man. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in front of Dagon. Dagon sort of sits above God in this scene as a, and putting God in the inferior position because they just beat, as they thought, the God of Israel. So Dagon was supreme. Well, the priests leave. They come back the very next morning. What do they find? But Dagon has fallen from his perch and he's in the dirt, bowing, as it were, before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they're confused by this. So they set Dagon back up on his perch, on his sort of table, and then they go. The next day they come back, but what they find is even more shocking than what they saw yesterday. This time, not only is Dagon on the ground before God, before the Ark of the Covenant, his head has been chopped off. And his hands, the palms of his hands, it says, have been severed. The priests of Dagon understood what God was saying. Dagon submits to Yahweh. Dagon is less than the God of Israel. And God used that graphic illustration to prove to the Philistines that he alone is superior. He alone is supreme. He doesn't bend the knee to any pagan deity because God, the God of the Bible, has supreme authority. And in fact, the priests of Dagon were so shocked by what they saw, they never entered that temple again. It says they refused to tread on the threshold of the temple. God's sovereignty is supreme. Next point is God's sovereignty is sweeping. So God's sovereignty is sweeping. And you might wonder, well, what does sweeping mean in the context of an attribute of God? Well, God's sovereignty, by saying it's sweeping, I mean it's all-encompassing. It's all-inclusive. The sovereignty of God covers everything. There's nothing that falls outside the border, outside the parameters of God's sovereignty. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. That last phrase, rules over all, is where we get the notion that God is sovereign and is sweeping sovereignty. It covers everything. So let me just break that down a little bit when, when the psalmist says that He rules over all. Oh, well, practically speaking, what does that mean? What does that include, right? What are the elements of all? For starters, the natural world. God is in control over the natural world. Remember what Psalm 135 said, right? He does whatever he pleases in heaven, on earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. 
He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Who makes lightning for the rain. Who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Psalmist is saying, north to south, to east to west, high to low, God's sovereignty covers every single thing. So, God governs creation. What else does God govern? What about nations? What about this nation? What about kingdoms and empires and rulers and presidents and parliaments and congresses? Does God's authority even extend to those things? The scripture says yes. Psalm 66.7 says, He rules by His might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Who rules? God rules. What does He rule over? He rules over the nations. Every single country, every single people, is under the power and the authority of Almighty God. They may not live like it. They may reject Him. They may deny His existence. But we know that God nevertheless rules absolutely over every nation. Moreover, He personally rules over these rulers of the world. Isaiah 40, which is in the context of Isaiah giving this description of the massive magnitude and power and might of God, Isaiah says this, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. And catch this. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their root, their stock taken root in the earth but He merely blows on them and they wither. And a storm carries them away like stubble. Isaiah says, the most powerful men on this planet, they're like plants. And God is the gardener. God plants them here for a time. And when He's done, when it's time to change the plants, He just uproots them and He throws them away and He plants another one in their place. Does the plant have a say where the gardener puts it? Of course not. And neither does a, a ruler in this world have a say. Because rulers are under God's sovereignty. They're pawns on a chessboard. And he moves them here. He moves them there as he wishes. So God's sovereign over big things, right? Over creation. He's sovereign over empires and nations and kings and presidents. But what about small things? What about individuals like us? We don't have power. We're not national global figures. Does God's sovereignty notice us? The Old Testament prophet Samuel says yes. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. So what's the implication from a verse like this? 
let's make it personal for you. God governs the details of every single instance of your life. When you're born and where you're born, God controlled that. Which family you're born into, God controls that. What school you go to, what university you attend, God controls that. What job you get, what job you don't get, God controls that. Who you marry and if you marry, God controls that. When you die and how you die, God controls that. Those terminal points, birth and death, and everything in between, God governs. So does the sovereignty of God relate to your life? Absolutely. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. God's sovereignty covers all of creation and it covers every second and every step of your life. Is there anything else that his sovereignty covers? Is that the extent of it? How about the spiritual world? Does God have control over the spirit realm? Angels, demons, Satan. Maybe those creatures are beyond his power, right? Maybe they're too strong for him and he just does his best to contain them. But he can't really control them like he controls us. Well, let's see what the scripture says. Ephesians 1, 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Paul says, everything has been subjected to Christ. Angels, demons, and everything everything else in the spiritual realm. And that phrase, all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, It indicates that Christ exclusively has authority over every evil, angelic power. Satan, his demons, they're not free agents outside of God's control as if they can go and wreak havoc on the world, but God's powerless to watch. And he wishes he could stop them, but he just can't because he doesn't have the power. No, no, no. Demons can't move a muscle without God's explicit permission. That's what Martin Luther said. Even the devil is God's devil. He may be a prowling lion, but he's a lion on a leash, and God holds the leash. One final sphere over which God is sovereign. This one may be a bit harder to accept, but it's in the Scriptures. This last fear, sphere over which God is sovereign is simply this. Salvation. God is sovereign over human salvation. Let me give you two passages that make that point. Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. This one from Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. 
In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So let me ask you, what are these verses saying? Saying that God is sovereign over salvation. That God chooses specific people to be saved. And He ensures that they do, in fact, get saved. It's not because they work hard. It's not because they're good. They've got no merit, no righteousness, no personal worth that they offer up to God. And He says, well, i, I got to accept you. No, no, no. The Scriptures are explicit. Salvation is a a result of God's choice. But let me be clear. In no way does God's sovereignty over salvation remove our personal responsibility to repent and believe. More could be said. We could spend hours on this. But let me give you one text that affirms in no uncertain terms That each person has an individual responsibility to respond in repentance and faith. John 1, 12 and 13. Turn with me there. John 1, 12 and 13. First chapter of the Gospel of John. And he has this remarkable statement. But as many as received him. Him being Christ. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. And then listen to this. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That truth is also outlined in Matthew 11. 27, 28, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, and other places. But note what John said. He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Then he goes on to say it's not because of what they did. So let let me turn the question around on you. In a room this size... There may be some who have actually never done that part. They've never believed. Maybe you grew up in church your whole life, but but this critical component of truly believing in Christ, truly placing your faith in Him as your Savior, turning from your sin, maybe that thing, you've never actually come all the way. I sat by a girl on the plane yesterday on the flight here. She's from a, a Russian background. Grew up going to the Russian church. So I asked her, if you die, where do you think you'll spend your eternity? She says, I I think heaven. She says, I'm 95% sure. Okay, why 95% sure? She says, because I don't know that I've done enough to quite get, get to heaven. This is a girl who spent her whole life in the Russian church. And she said, I'm a Christian. And yet, based on our conversation, I don't think she understood the fact that salvation doesn't come by doing. 
but it's a gift of God that you receive through repentance and faith. And so if you are one who's never believed in a saving way, like John says, let today be the day where God's sovereignty over salvation intersects with your response of obedience and faith. All of creation falls under the sovereign sway of God. The physical world, the spiritual world, you as an individual, and your salvation. One theologian says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Which means he lays claim to everything because he is sovereign. Last point on the sovereignty of God. A final feature that you need to know Not only is his sovereignty supreme, that is, ultimate. Not only is it sweeping, all-inclusive. But his sovereignty is also unstoppable. His sovereignty is unstoppable. By that, I mean it's unquestionable, unconquerable, invincible, invulnerable. There is nothing that can stop God's plans. There's no resisting God's will. There's no defeating Him. Because He does as He pleases. No one knew that better than Job. In Job 42, verse 2, after experiencing the worst troubles imaginable and desiring to see God and bring His case before God so He could hear God explain, why would you do this to me? God shows up. And God doesn't answer his questions. God simply declares that he is infinitely great. And in response to God's declaration, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and no purposes of yours can be thwarted. That word purpose, it has to do with any kind of plot or project or plan that someone wants to accomplish. And to thwart it means to render that thing impossible. Like, oh, you want to do it, but it's out of reach for you. You're not going to be able to accomplish that. Job is saying, God, I know that everything you want to do, you will accomplish. Nobody can block you. Nobody can thwart you, stop you, prevent you from accomplishing what you desire. Every one of your plans will come to pass. That's what Job was acknowledging there. About three months ago, I was up here in Portland with my sister. We, uh, we spent a week, kind of a Northwest tour, Pacific Northwest, uh, Oregon and Washington. We only had a couple days in Portland, and we were driving down the Columbia River Gorge, and uh, beautiful, beautiful scenery. And uh, one of the things we wanted to do was go to Mount Hood. My sister had read that there's like a ski lodge up there and the view's really, really nice. So we were going to go up to Mount Hood. Uh, It had snowed recently, but they'd already plowed the road, so we thought we'll be fine. I mean, we weren't like a four-wheel drive, right? We were in a Toyota Corolla front-wheel drive. So we were hoping there wasn't snow because we wanted to make it up there. So we started driving. We get into the park. First few miles, it's great, right? The roads are good, no problem. But then as it starts to slope up, 
we noticed that we finally hit the snow line. And then the road still had some, some snow on there. But we were doing okay. But then when it got a little bit steeper, our tires just started spinning like a windmill. And we started going slower and slower and slower. And we looked behind us and the cars were getting, the line was getting longer and longer and longer. And we realized we are never going to make it up to the top of this mountain in this front wheel drive Corolla. And finally, we decided that, man, we're going to have to abandon ship, right? We can't make this. So we turned around, much to the relief of like the 30 cars behind us. Why do I tell you about our failure to get to Mount Hood? Because God will never have a Mount Hood moment. He will never wish to do something, plan to do something. Get halfway there and realize, I can't pull this off. That's what we experienced. Because we couldn't get to Mount Hood. God will never have a moment where he is thwarted or hindered from doing something. Let me give you an illustration from scripture. Daniel chapter 4 that I think summarizes this and illustrates the point with tremendous clarity. Daniel chapter 4. We've got Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, leader of a world empire, immensely powerful, immensely wealthy. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. In the dream, he sees a massive tree. The top reaches into heaven. It's seen from all over the world. Beautiful, lush. All the animals take shelter on it, under it. And then in the dream, an angel comes. And an angel says, chop down the tree, cut off the branches, scatter the leaves. All that was left was a stump. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. He's understandably alarmed by this. So he says, I need someone to interpret this. Enter Daniel. Daniel comes in and he tells the king the dream. You, king, are the tree. The tree represents your massive empire. And yet, king, because of your pride, God is going to strip your kingdom from you. And he's going to... Knock you down to size, as we would say in Arkansas. He's going to take you off your throne and humble you. One year later, that is precisely what happened. Nebuchadnezzar was removed from the throne and he was banished for seven years. He was in exile for seven years. And finally, after being brought to the lowest place imaginable, Nebuchadnezzar repented. He humbled himself. He acknowledged that God was supreme. And he repented. Listen to what he says in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he, he being God, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is an amazing statement. By a man who had a profound experience with the sovereignty of God. That word ward there when, when Nebuchadnezzar said no one can ward off his hand. It means to strike. Like when you were a kid and you wanted like a cookie. But your mom says no but you went for it anyways. And she slaps your hand away. And you pull back because it hurts. What she just did is warded you off. She frustrated your plans to get the cookie. 
That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying can never happen to God. No one can slap God's hand and says, nope, can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar's life was proof positive of that. Perhaps the most powerful man in the world and God knocked him off his throne as easily as you would flick a bug off of a table. And Nebuchadnezzar was helpless to resist. And the reason why is because God's sovereignty is irresistible. You can't defeat it. You can't get around it. You can't block it or stop it or pause it. When I was on the plane sitting next to that girl after we had talked about the gospel, she said, what are you doing in Portland? I said, I'm going to go teach at a conference. She said, what are you teaching on? I said, well, the first thing I'm going to teach on is the sovereignty of God. She said, well, tell me, explain to me what you're going to talk about. So I gave her like a two-minute summary. And then I thought she wisely asked, she said, well, what are you supposed to do about God's sovereignty? How are you supposed to live based on that? That's where we want to go now. How are we supposed to live based on the sovereignty of God? Because this is not just some intellectual, academic truth that I hope you know. Now you're smarter and then you're all the better. No, this is meant to drive your behavior. The sovereignty of God must change the way you live. So let me lay out three ways that the sovereignty of God requires a response. Personally, personal response from you. First, recognize that all sin is rebellion. If God is sovereign, and He is, then every single act of sin is an act of cosmic treason. R.C. Sproul says, sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deepest implications of the smallest sin? What are we saying to the Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying, God, Your law is not good. My judgment is better than Yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond Your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. End quote. Did you know that every act of sin is that? It is rebellion against the creator and ruler of the universe. The scripture affirms that. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's what John says in 1 John. Sin is rebellion against the divine lawgiver. You need to understand that when you sin, an angry thought, a lustful look, a proud thought, irritation, jealousy, impatience, unkindness, every single sin is an attempt to overthrow God. To pull him off of his throne and to assert your authority over his. To sin is to shake your fist at God and say, I will not obey you. 
See, we live in a culture, if it even acknowledges that sin exists, it says, ah, sin is like a, a minor mistake. It's like an oops moment. Don't be too caught up if you sin. But usually our culture says there's no such thing as sin. There's no creator. There's no rules. Do what you want. And so we live in a world that says, don't worry about your sin. But yet we live under a God that says, worry about your sin. We live in a world that's Romans 1.32. Although they know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That means sin is championed, sin is celebrated, sin is encouraged. In fact, the things that God hates, our culture delights in. God says, flee immorality. But sexual immorality is promoted in every form of media. Your phone, your TV, your computer, the billboards, magazines. Guy who founded Playboy said, ah, sex is the driving force on the planet. We should embrace it, not see it as the enemy. The Bible calls homosexuality an abomination. Our culture says it's beautiful. The news anchor, Anderson Cooper from CNN, he said this, I think being gay is a blessing, and I think it's something I'm thankful for every single day. The Bible says God created man, male and female. Our culture says you can be whatever gender you want. And if you want to go back and forth, you can do that too. In fact, on the plane yesterday, I sat behind a transgender guy who was very evidently a guy who wanted to be a woman. Christine Jorgensen was one of the first people to ever have a sex reassignment surgery. And she said, nature made a mistake which I have corrected. That's the world in which we live. That's our culture. Our culture is a, all it does is seek to throw off God's authority and establish its own. To rid itself of this tyrannical ruler who would seek to impose limits on your freedom of self-expression. It's crazy. And so it's hard to be a Christian in this culture and realize that sin is rebellion. Every time we sin, we say what Satan says in Isaiah 14, 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. When we sin, we say what Pharaoh said in Exodus 5, 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? That defiance is the heartbeat of sin. So how are we supposed to respond to the sovereignty of God? Firstly, by recognizing that all sin is rebellion. And by therefore choosing to walk in obedience. Psalm 4.4 says, tremble and do not sin. That should be the definition of of us, not those who rebel by sinning, but those who tremble and flee sin. There's a second way that the sovereignty of God ought to personally impact your life. You need to relinquish your right to complain. 
which means give up your perceived right to argue with God when you don't like what he's doing in your life. Isaiah 45, 7 and 9 says, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. A piece of pottery among the earthenware pottery pieces. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. What's God saying here in Isaiah 45? He's exposing the foolishness of complaining against God. Of arguing against the way that God is ruling the universe. It would be ridiculous for the clay to tell the potter, I don't want to be that kind of a shape. I want to be a different form. Because the clay doesn't get a say in the matter. The potter makes it into whatever he wants. And that's God's point. That's why he uses the analogy. Because God says, I'm the all-sovereign one, not you. Stop questioning me. Paul expresses a similar point in Romans 9, verses 20 and 21. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? See, the scripture exposes the foolishness of questioning God's will. Of complaining when he does things that we don't like. God is God, we are not. God sits on the throne of heaven, we don't. God rules the universe, we don't. We have no right to to fight against his sovereignty, to complain about what he does. The other day I was at the park back in SoCal and there was a guy walking his dog. It was was kind of a, it was a puppy, I think. And I say that because of the way that the dog was fighting against the leash. So the man could barely take two steps before the dog would, would jump and like twist its body and try to bite off the leash which obviously wasn't working, and but yet the dog kept trying to fight the leash, resist it. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what Christians do to God. We don't like the direction he's taking us. I don't want to go that way. And so we pull back and we jerk our head, trying to wrestle ourselves away from his authority. And when we complain about what he's doing, when we argue that, God, why are you doing this to me? then what we're really doing is fighting against his sovereignty. And we do that when we complain because we want that job, but we don't get it. When we complain that, God, I want to go to that university, but they rejected me. We complain when we say, I've been praying for a spouse for so long, and yet why don't you bring me somebody? Our complaining gets louder when the situation gets even worse, right? When we're struck by some kind of sudden illness that really changes the way we live. 
when a close family friend or a family member or friend dies. Many of us are so quick to grumble, so quick to complain, so quick to find fault with God. And yet, when you consider that He's the potter and we're the clay, what are we doing? How are we going to question His sovereignty like that? Jonathan Edwards writes, This doctrine, this sovereignty, shows the unreasonableness and dreadful wickedness of your refusing to own the sovereignty of God in the matter. It shows that you know not that God is God. If you knew this, you would be inwardly still and quiet. You would humbly and calmly lie in the dust before a sovereign God and would see sufficient reason for this. In objecting and quarreling against the righteousness of God's laws and threatenings and His sovereign dispensations toward you and others, you oppose His divinity. You show your ignorance of His greatness and excellency. What an audacious thing it is for a creature as man to strive with his maker. What an audacious thing for a creature such as man to strive with his maker. The example for us is Job. You know his story. It's a common one. Job suffered the loss of all his possessions. Lost his children in a tornado. He even lost all of his health. When Satan afflicted him. He had nothing. And yet he says in chapter 2 verse 10. Shall we accept good from God. And not accept adversity. You would think that if anybody was going to complain. Anybody had a real case to argue with God. Like why are you doing this? It was Job. Or so the human line of thinking would go. But what Job knew is that God had a right to do whatever he wanted. Because God is God and Job was just a man. Job knew that if God could give him blessings, God could pull those blessings away. So when Job couldn't make sense of life, he didn't complain, he didn't grumble. He leaned on the sovereignty of God. And that would be my encouragement, admonition, and exhortation to you. When your life gets hard, when things don't go the way you want, when decisions don't go in your favor, recognize and realize that every challenge that God brings your way is designed to strengthen you, to make you more like Christ. Spurgeon said, there's no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. What does it mean for you? Well, it means relinquish, give up your right to complain. Live each day in the knowledge that God will do what is right. And that your moments are lived out in His hand. And He runs the universe. There's a final response to the sovereignty of God. We'll say it this way. Bend 
bow and bless. Bend the knee in humility, bow the heart in worship, bless God in sincerity. The sovereignty of God ought to compel you to worship. It is a beautiful truth, an incredible, marvelous reality, the sovereignty of God. And as you look at it properly, you should worship God for his sovereignty. David got it right when he says in 1 Chronicles 29, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. You see how David started? Blessed are you. That's the appropriate response to sovereignty. Psalmist also got it right, Psalm 103. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Do you see how there's this universal call to worship God for sovereignty? And then the psalmist ends it right here in his own heart. And he says, soul, you bless the Lord. That rightly falls upon each of you to bless the Lord for his sovereignty, to worship him for his sovereignty. If the angels can bless him, if the hosts can bless him, if all the works of God's hands can bless him, can man really not bless him? Would we resist that call? The beauty of God's sovereignty is such that your heart ought to compel you to want to worship God for his sovereignty. It is a sweet, sweet doctrine. So a proper response to the sovereignty of God Bend the knee in humility. Bow the heart in worship. And bless God with sincerity. I want to return to the words of John Calvin as we conclude this. He said it is a most blessed thing to be subject to the sovereignty of God. I hope that now you would say the same. That you would say, I'm so glad I live in a sovereign king's hand. And I pray that your heart would be compelled to worship him. This is not meant to make you smarter. This is meant to make you worship. The sovereignty of God is a glorious truth to apprehend, to recognize and realize and to take hold of and to let that then stimulate a life of obedience and a life of worship. May God be ever greater and higher and bigger in your eyes as you reflect on the sovereignty of God. Let me pray. Father, you are singularly worthy of worship.
pray that every student here would be persuaded of that. That they would see your sovereignty as a beautiful, lovely truth. One that is comforting, reassuring, inspiring, encouraging, challenging. I pray that they would delight in your sovereignty. And that as we said at the beginning, that you would get the glory because of it. Amen.